Let's start with a prayer, shall we? Mighty God, we come to you this morning knowing that you are faithful to meet us in the place of our deepest need. Be present to us now and reveal yourself. Help us to know you, to love you, to follow you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We are almost finished with the Ten Commandments. Not that you ever finish with the Ten Commandments, but we've almost studied through all of the Ten Commandments. Uh, we're on Commandment 10. This is question 331 in the Catechism on page 125. What is the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment is, you shall not covet. That's the abbreviated version. Here's the full text from Exodus. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Comprehensive. Right? You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. What strikes me about that is that it combines a high degree of specificity. It really makes a point of listing out all these things with a really all-encompassing, all-embracing, there's nothing that it's appropriate to covet. It's not that. Okay. Technology's acting up. I'm not sure what to do about it. Sorry. Um, second question. 332, what does it mean not to covet? I am not to let envy make me want what others have, but in humility should be content with what I have. So what's the relationship between coveting and envy? We've got a commandment about coveting, and now suddenly they're introducing this envy language. What's the connection there? Okay, envy is of a person and coveting is of a thing. I like that, yeah. Um, envy or jealousy, you look at another person, you feel that twinge. Now, how come she, or why does he have that kind of life or that kind of blessing or that kind of opportunity? Why didn't I get that? There's this comparison with other people. Right? Envy is always an act of comparison that leads to jealousy. Some, there's something about that person in comparison to me that I feel like I'm not coming out well in this comparison. There's an old saying, comparisons are odious. It goes back at least to the 1400s. Uh, it is a very Christian thought. Coveting is envy when it starts to get applied, I suppose. When it starts to get specific and say, okay, I'm, I'm envious of this person. Not just they have these circumstances, the situation, these opportunities, this blessing that I don't, but I want what they have. 
not just the kind of unsettled distress or frustration of the difference of our situations, but I want that thing they have, which I suppose works out to, I want them not to have it, because I should. It should be my thing. Or how should I get it? How can I get it? Right, so coveting can also lead to or be wrapped up with greed. Right, these are very closely integrally related things. So what's the answer to coveting according to this question? What's the alternative? It says, I'm not to let envy make me want what others have, but in humility, I should be content with what I have. The alternative to coveting is contentment. Accepting the gifts that I have been given as good. And perhaps learning to praise God and bless God for the gifts he's given someone else that he hasn't given me. Okay, that's harder. We see this principle in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. The love of money is the root of all evil. You've heard that one. Um, but the contrast that we don't quote so often is godliness with contentment is great gain. The, this desire for more and more and more, this never satisfied, I still need that next thing, but wait, so-and-so has that, but I need the newest game system, Mom. We should covet another person's faith and spirituality. We, <laughs> yeah, um, we, we use we use covet in this kind of weird, ambiguous way. You, you ever said or heard someone say, "I covet your prayers," right? That's a little weird when you're thinking about coveting as something that the Ten Commandments says not to do. Um, so, okay, yeah, we we do sometimes use the word in this kind of morally open-ended way to say, I, I desire this thing. And there are things that it's right for us to desire. Increase of faith, godliness. There are ways that we might want to emulate someone else. Um, but I think we have to be careful even with that, that part of coveting, what's often implicit in that is, it's that act of comparison. I want that, which means she doesn't have it. He's not like that. Or I, I wish, I feel like I'm a little behind in this holiness race, and I wish I could be just a little ahead, or, or at least neck and neck, right? Um, and, and there is actually something spiritually dangerous about even comparing one's own spiritual life to someone else's. For one, you're not in a position to evaluate their spiritual life. For two, you're actually not in a position to evaluate your own spiritual life very accurately. But I think even here, comparisons are odious. You're not called to be the same saint that God is making that person into. Right? So there is an appropriate place for looking and saying, wow, this is a person who has great humility. I want to learn that. I want to spend time around this person. I want to see if some of that will rub off on me. Uh, and, and I think that's entirely appropriate. Uh, we should 
be spurred on by the example of the saints and not just saints of past ages whose stories we read, but the saints in the pews around us. Um, this is how discipleship works, right? You see someone who's further along and you say, would you walk alongside me and help me learn to run this race as well? Um, this is part of the role of spiritual direction, seeing what is God doing in my spiritual life and how can I enter more fully into that? Um, someone else's wisdom and experience may help me do that. But, but there's a danger to comparison even in the spiritual life that I think we want to keep an eye on. Because this is the way that this sin makes itself look really holy. Right? But, but I just want a better prayer life, like Joe's prayer life. Well, God isn't calling you to have his prayer life. God's calling you to have your prayer life deepened and enlivened and transformed. And it may or may not look like Joe's. Maybe you can learn things about prayer from Joe, but, but be careful there. Does that make sense? Okay. Coveting demeans and lowers your self-worth and maybe the other person's, actually. Um, it, it acts as though the person who ultimately we're emulating and trying to be like is someone other than Jesus. If we want to know what contentment looks like, Jesus gives us an example. That's where the catechism goes next. Question 333. How did Jesus practice contentment? In contentment, Jesus took on the form of a servant without wealth or possessions, and in his earthly life loved and trusted his Father in all things. The Lord was poor, right? And Paul in Philippians 2 is going to make a kind of metaphysical and theological claim about that. Jesus lays aside the glory he shares with the Father in order to come and be with us, in order to save us. Um, elsewhere in Paul's writings, you know Christ Jesus, who although he was rich, for your sake became poor so that we might become rich in him, so that he could share the, his spiritual riches with us. Um, Jesus himself says, when someone says, I, I want to come follow you, he's like, birds have nests and foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, he probably could have had somewhere to lay his head. It's not like he didn't have a good job back in Nazareth or Capernaum or someplace. But he chooses to be radically reliant on the Father and, in fact, on the generosity of other people in his traveling and his ministry in order to bring his grace and salvation to the world. This is the opposite movement of contentment, or the opposite movement of coveting. This is what contentment looks like. It's embracing the life that you've been given. It's embracing the call that you've been given. It's saying what the Father has given me is not a serpent or a scorpion, but an egg, a piece of bread, not a stone, because he's a good father. 
And I, I don't know if you all get this impression, but I get the sense from the gospel that Jesus is not dour and sort of slumping and walking through life. Well, okay, I'm being content. You know, you say it with your teeth gritted. He seems joyful to me. And Hebrews says this, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He embraces this lowliness and this profound loss. But in that place, he's able to say, all things have been given to me by my father. He's not comparing himself to anyone else. But he has this radical freedom. And I think this is part of the point of the 10th commandment God wants to liberate us from being possessed by our possessions or by our image of what we think we're supposed to look like or our lives are supposed to look like. Because those things can come to control us. We can belong to them. We can belong to our, our imagined idea of what someone else's life is like. Which means you're missing out on what God is actually doing. The commandment, thou shalt not covet, is meant to set us free. That's the point. So 334, how is covetousness especially dangerous? Covetousness begins with discontent in mind and spirit, and as it grows in the heart, it can lead to sins such as idolatry, adultery, and theft. All right, we've already talked about how it can lead to greed, right? And greed could lead to stealing, to mistreating someone else's possessions. But the classic example of this, of course, is King David on the rooftop when he probably should have been out in the field of battle, coveting his neighbor's wife, which leads to adultery, which leads to murder, which leads to a cover-up, it gets bad real fast. And I think this is the insight that Jesus is picking up on and developing in the Sermon on the Mount. You'll remember this from the latter part of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall not murder your brother. I say to you, whoever hates his brother is already in danger of hell. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, whoever looks on a woman in order to lust after her is already committing adultery in his heart. Jesus makes this move from external actions that the Ten Commandments talk about to the intention and the purposes of the heart. He says, okay, but what are you intending? What are you purposing? What are you trying to do? you may already be violating the commandments. That's where the commandments are obeyed or not. And then that plays out in action. But the point I want to make is that the Ten Commandments themselves are already starting to make that move. Jesus doesn't make this up. And we see that in the Tenth Commandment. After all these statements about, you shall not do this, you shall not do this, you shall not. Well, wait, coveting isn't necessarily an external action. Like, you might not do anything about that that would be obvious to anyone else. If I steal my next door neighbor's motorcycle, he's probably gonna notice, 
But if I covet, he may not know at all. It'll affect my relationship with him somehow, but he may not pick up on it. He may not be that intuitive. But the commandments know this because they're given by the same God who's preaching to us in the Sermon on the Mount, that God is interested in more than our outward behavior. It's how are we shaping our souls? How are we being formed as human persons? And coveting is so dangerous because it can be a secret act of the heart, but it's already misforming us in this profound way. So what's the alternative? 335. What should you do instead of coveting? I should think often of the inheritance that Jesus has prepared for me. Meditate upon his care for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. Be generous with what God has entrusted to me and help others to keep what is rightfully theirs. Okay, there are, I think here are two basic cures for covetousness, two prescriptions for the coveting disease. And one of them is thankfulness. Again, we see this toward the end of a number of St. Paul's letters. In everything give thanks. Do not worry about every, anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Do you need something? Do you want something? Talk to God about it. That's fine. With thanksgiving. It's that reorientation of the heart to recognize that God has given me gifts and to try to find them and be thankful for them that starts to turn me away from this unhealthy, ungodly act of comparison toward what God's actually doing. So thankfulness is, I think, the first cure for covetousness. But we've got another one here that this answer offers, and I think this is really insightful. It's generosity. Right? Part of the healing of covetousness is looking for opportunities to give stuff away. Uh, one of and one of the classic Christian spiritual disciplines is almsgiving, giving to the poor. And there are a lot of forms that that can take. But if you remember last week in Commandment 8, Thou shalt not steal, the Catechism talks about how everything ultimately belongs to God. We're given it as stewards to care for, to use well and wisely. Well, sometimes that means giving it to others. It means sharing what we have. And that's the opposite movement of wanting to take away what someone else has, right? Say, like, I see you have a need, and I might be in a position to do something about that. It could be financial. It could be someone who is in a particular life situation where they just need help, they're not able to do certain things, just had surgery and they need somebody to mow their lawn. Okay, there are a lot of ways that could look. But being generous with your time, with your possessions, with your love, with your home, 
This is part of the way that covetousness is healed. And this takes us into this final section of the catechism, sort of summing up, okay, we've journeyed through the Ten Commandments. Where does that leave us now? Question 336. Is it possible for you to keep all these commandments? No. I fail to fulfill them perfectly, however hard I try. One purpose of the law is to show me my utter inability to obey God flawlessly, and so to point to my need of Christ's obedience and atoning death on my behalf. Okay, if we were only talking about external actions, we might have a shot at pulling that off. Like maybe if you're really, really self-disciplined, you, you could succeed at that. Could happen. Uh, if the commandments even were only about not doing certain things, maybe we'd be in a position to make a shot at obeying them in our own strength. But the Catechism reminds us, and it, rightly, that every thou shalt not implies a positive command. There's a positive call to action and obedience. As Jesus makes clear, if you didn't get it from commandment number 10, it's not just about actions, which means we're in trouble. Right? The, the law in traditional Christian teaching is given for several reasons. First of all, it's given to reveal who God is. The law is divine self-revelation. God is showing us, this is what I am like. And so I'm showing you what it looks like for you to bear my image, for you to live in relationship with me, for you to be my people. The law is a gift. The law is good. God gives it to us. It's a thing to be thankful for. But one of the effects of that is that the law also shows us our spiritual state, and we discover we're in a really bad way. The x-ray that reveals the cancer is good. It's good to know that, but crap, I have cancer. Right? Not good. And this is the reason why in the liturgy, in the Anglican tradition, the recitation of the Ten Commandments or the summary of the law, Jesus saying you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbors yourself. We say one or the other of those things every single Sunday. And our response is, Lord, have mercy. Right? Because when you hear the law proclaimed, the good law of God that reveals who God is and shines a light on who you are, the only sane response is, Lord, have mercy. It shows us our need for God to do what we can't do for ourselves. Right? And that's where this answer takes us. I fail to fulfill them perfect, perfectly, and so it points to my need for Christ to obey on my behalf. For his atoning death to fulfill the penalty that I deserve and can't bear. 337. Since you cannot keep God's commandments perfectly, what has Jesus done on your behalf? As the perfect human and the unblemished lamb, Jesus has offered himself to God 
suffering death for my redemption upon the cross, which is once for all sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. The Anglican liturgical tradition really, 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 really insists on this. Jesus' work and sacrifice is complete. It's enough. There's not some additional sacrifice that needs to be made. There's not some further work that needs to be accomplished. He has done, when he says it is finished, he's telling the truth. And this is part of the Reformation dispute of insisting, okay, we, no, look, you've got to be careful. You can't say that there's anything that implies there's another sacrifice happening in the Eucharistic act. It's a participation in Christ's one sacrifice, but he's done that. We don't need another one. We're entering into that sacrifice and receiving and accepting that gift and allowing it to be applied to ourselves. There's nothing more that needs to be done that he has not done. We're, I think, going to sing later during communion, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Okay. That's a little more American frontier Baptist style way of saying the same thing the Anglican liturgy is saying. His one full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction offered for the sins of the whole world. It's enough. And he's done it. Jesus, through his perfect obedience what the fathers say over and over. He unites our human nature to his divine nature. He lives a real, true human life. And in so doing, he restores our nature. He makes it possible for us to be rightly ordered again. That's what's happening here. So, 338, does Christ's obedience excuse you from personal obedience? No, obedience is always due to God as our Father, Lord, and Creator. Despite my sin and weakness, I should strive always to obey Him, looking to Jesus for salvation and to the Holy Spirit for strength. So you ask, wait a minute, if Jesus has done it all, then it doesn't matter what I do, right? Wrong. Absolutely wrong. First off, because God made us, he made us for a purpose. He deserves and rightly demands our obedience. Okay, to live rightly in relationship to the God who God is, is to obey. But also because we're made for obedience and loving service to God. We're made to live in relationship with him. That's our true fulfillment. We're not living true, full human lives if we're in a broken relationship with God. We read Genesis chapter 3 last Sunday. God comes and Adam and Eve run and hide because their relationship with God is broken. Their perception of themselves has broken down. They're ashamed because they're naked. Their perception of one another clearly isn't working out very well. Adam, what happened? She made me do it. Eve, you want to tell me about it? It's a snake. It's a snake. Right? It, their relationship is collapsing. 
when they turn away from God. This is not full, thriving human life. Shame, relational breakdown, fear. No, we're not made for that. I, I've heard this a distressing number of times. You say, well, of course I'm never going to be perfect. I'm only human. No, the problem is not that you're too human. The problem is that you're not human enough. If you want to see someone who's really human, Jesus showed us one of those. Okay? A lot of people, I think, have far too shallow an idea of what salvation is. That it becomes just about, I have this sin problem and God forgives me. That's a big deal. That's part of it. We can never downplay that. But it's not just that. And I, I appreciate the way the catechism lays this out in these next few questions because it paints the larger picture of what salvation actually is. So let's look at these together. 339. What is the first benefit of Christ's sacrifice? My sins are forgiven when I confess them and ask for pardon through Christ's shed blood. I live by being forgiven. That's a really nice last sentence. The first benefit is forgiveness. It's reconciliation. All right. If a relationship has broken down, what's the first thing that needs to happen? You have to address it and say, this relationship has broken down. It was my fault. I did that. I want to be restored. And if the person with whom you are in relationship has said, I want to restore you, that's going to be incredibly costly for me because someone has to pay for this breakdown that's happened. Either you're going to have to pay for it, that's not going to work, or I'm going to have to absorb it. Okay, I'll get nailed to a cross. We've been invited into reconciliation. Right? We who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of his cross, Scripture says. Fractured relationships are painful. Hey, guys. Great. Carry on. But our existence is through God. Yeah, nobody's paying attention to me now. That's fine. <laughs> they're, they're a lot more fun to watch. It's true. <laughs> No, you're good. St. Paul says in Acts chapter 17, when he's speaking on Mars Hill in Athens, he says, in him, that is God, we live and move and have our being. Right? He's actually quoting one of the Greek poets there. But claiming and reapplying that statement. In him we live and move our head have our being. Our existence is through God. Not to be reconciled from God is to have a breakdown in our very being. And so the catechism says, I live by being forgiven. I live by being forgiven. Right? That's true. It's a profoundly true thing. The problem is some people want to stop there. But question 340, are you still broken despite God's forgiveness? Yes. Sin leaves me wounded, lonely, afraid, divided, 
and in need of Christ's healing ministry. That sounds like something less than full human flourishing to me. If salvation is healing, I need forgiveness, but I don't just need forgiveness. Right? If I have a disease that causes my kidneys to shut down, I probably need to get put on dialysis, stat, so that I don't die. But then I need the disease to be cured so I don't have it anymore. And then I need my kidneys to be healed so that they start working and performing their function again so that I can actually be a whole, healthy human being. Some people spend years going in and having dialysis a couple of times a week. That's better than the alternative. But it's not fully restored human life yet. There's more that needs to happen. Sin has consequences, right? Not just sins, not just particular things that I do, but this infection that I bear in my flesh and in my soul. We're in bondage, Scripture says. We are dying. It is a mortal disease and it will kill you. And that sickness goes deep. It, it touches every part of us. It ruins, it kills, it destroys things. The good news is that the God who loves us doesn't leave us there. He doesn't only forgive us. He begins to make us new. This is the risen Jesus in the book of Revelation. Behold, I make all things new. Romans chapter 8. The whole creation groans, waiting with longing for the restoration of the children of God. And this is the classic collect that we pray. That This is part of the great vigil at Easter. O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restores the dignity of human nature. God is engaging in a restoration project, a recreation project. So 341, how does Jesus heal you? Through the gift and fruit of the Holy Spirit. Jesus mends my disordered soul from the effects of sin in my mind, will, and desire. First part, through the gift and fruit of the Holy Spirit. Okay, salvation is not just something that happens to us from the outside. Some people have quoted Martin Luther. I don't know if he actually said this, but people have quoted him that the, the Christian is like a pile of dung covered over with snow. He probably didn't say dung. He did say it. But salvation isn't just something that's applied externally. It's not just something God says about us, sort of pro forma. The Holy Spirit is implanted in us. God comes and takes his residence within us. And when God enters the temple, he cleanses it. When God makes a dwelling place, it has to be made holy. 
This is what the Old Testament law is about. God says, you're my people, which means I'm going to dwell with you, which means you have to change so that you don't die from me dwelling with you. In the new covenant, God ups the ante. It's not just I'm going to live among you. I'm going to live within you. You are living stones being built up into a spiritual temple, 1 Peter chapter 2. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says. It's living under scripture in and with the church that we come to live this life of obedience. Let's very quickly go through these last two questions. But, sorry, one more comment on that last one. All these things assist my growth in Christ. They are channels of God's abundant care for my soul. Okay? One thing that was really helpful to me in thinking about um, confession and absolution was when I read Martin Thornton saying that it, in the Anglican tradition, confession isn't just about naming a list of sins and getting forgiven, although, I mean, you do that. It's about getting back into the midst of the stream of God's grace and allowing God to apply his grace to the things that are keeping us from living in the fullness of that life. In the church, we live into the midst of that stream. We get drawn into the deep water where the life is. It's an, there's an abundance, and there, there's a gift, there's a care. Spirit, discipline. We don't like discipline very much. Larry the Hebrews points that out. But it's a gift. Right? These things are gifts and a sign of God's care for us. Question 344. For what does sanctification prepare you? Sanctification prepares me for the vision and glory of God in conformity to my Lord Jesus Christ, who has promised that the pure in heart shall see God. Right? This is the whole story of the Bible. We're created for fellowship with God. We're meant to dwell with him. Adam and Eve walk with God in the cool of the day. They fall, they sin, God comes, they run and hide. The whole story of scripture through the Exodus, through the commandments and God's revelation of law on Mount Sinai, through the tabernacle, through the temple, God is making a people transformed, made holy, so that he can dwell with them and they can dwell with him. Jesus comes and offers himself as a living sacrifice, rises again, restores our human nature, draws us to himself, makes us a living temple, gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we can dwell with God and God can dwell with us. In the book of Revelation, heaven and earth are joined. The new Jerusalem descends from heaven to the new earth. It says God himself will dwell with them, and he will be their God. They will be his people. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Right? This is what we're for. This is what sanctification is about. It's making us ready, making us capable of entering into that blessed life, of being with God, seeing God face to face, and not dying but entering into fullness of life. The pure in heart shall see God. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision. I saw the Lord seated on the throne. The train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And Isaiah says, oh no, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I can't be here. This is a problem. 
This is bad. And God sends one of the winged creatures to take a coal from the altar and touch his lips. And he says, your sin has been taken away and forgiven. God is cleansing us to be able to behold him and be in his presence. Question 345. With what attitude should I live a life of sanctification? God calls me to a life of joy, constant thoughts of God's love for me, and of my hope in Christ will keep me always rejoicing. Joy. Joy is the last word here. And we're going to leave joy as the last word. Let's pray. Mighty God, so draw our hearts to you. So guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills that we may be wholly yours utterly dedicated to you. And then use us, we pray as you will, always to your glory and the welfare of your people. Sanctify us that we may see you face to face. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.